You're listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. There is a passage that I want to uh, sit on with you and and have a look at. It will be one of those passages you've heard uh, before, no doubt you... uh, particularly if you've been following Jesus for a while, if you haven't yet heard this passage, it's a good one to know. And so I just want to take you through that uh, in a bit of a reflection as I dive into the topic tonight. And it's this famous passage in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I'm not sure how rested you feel. I'm not sure what your yoke is like, or even if you know what a yoke is, it's not the middle of an egg. We'll go into that in a second. But Jesus is saying here that he can't promise an easy life, and he has never, ever promised that. Actually, the opposite. But he has and does promise us that there is an easier way to do life than what our default is. And he's saying this in the context of religious people who have been exhausted and run out of, I guess, energy in trying to do their best to please God. The Jewish people had turned the Ten Commandments into 613 rules and regulations. I don't know how you go following the Ten, but they had to memorise 613. And there was a stipulation of what you should be like, how you should behave, how your relationship with God is going to work, and it was based on your merit. But if you're a normal human being, no matter whether you were born in this generation or prior, we don't ever feel good enough. In fact, we're plagued by a lie that subtly and not so subtly says you're not good enough. You're not good enough. And these lies are what kind of vie for our attention in our mind is that shepherd speaks his voice of truth and clarity and freedom. It is lost in a haze of lies. Psychologists talk about this and they say that over 90% of what we think in our stream of conscious is self-negative. Not just negative, self-negative, damaging to the self. It's also known, I don't know why they always say over 90%, I don't know how much of this they make up, but they're trying to make a point. That over 90% of what you think is actually useless. It's just stream of consciousness. It's not going to, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. But this busy mind that goes on, uh, colliding with thoughts of doubt, shame, not good enoughness, not beautiful enough, I am not, I am not, I am not. We all have our own script, goes around. And Jesus kind of enters this space and he just goes, Come to me. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle, I'm humble in heart, you'll find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Does anyone know what a yoke is? What is it, Stacey? Yes, usually an ox. So a yoke is a literal contraption that is uh, joined, is to join two oxen together so that they've got double the strength and that they've got double the strength to carry double the weight as they do heavy work, basically, usually carting a a plough or carting um, a wagon of sorts. And Jesus is saying, um, you can be yoked to something heavy and something really hard, but you've almost got to drag that. But if you come to me, 
and you learn how I do life, I'm going to give you rest. So you don't even have to do the heavy lifting. And if you come to me, I'm actually going to grant you not Netflix rest on the couch. I'm going to grant rest to your soul. Have you ever had rest to your soul before? And so sometimes as Christians, we can be yoked with this Christ. But if you're anything like me, sometimes I want to go in a different direction. And sometimes he's got to drag me. And sometimes I just don't even want to be there. But he is saying in that part of life where the noise is too much, the doubts are too big, the lies are too loud, come to me, I'll give you rest. In the message version, he says, are you tired and burnt out on religion? Exhausted from trying to be good enough? Exhausted from trying to be good enough for me? Come to me and I want to pour out unforced rhythms of grace. And as I was thinking about red and where God's taking us and what I've re-encountered since being back in the last three weeks is this unforced rhythm of grace that he just wants to pour out on us, on me, on you, and take us down a river where we get to float and not have to swim upstream. Anyone want that? Yeah. Yeah. What psychologists would call that picture is a secure attachment. Security as a human being is one of our our deepest needs, one of our top two needs. If you wanted to know what the other one is, it is a sense of control and ability to have agency, which Jesus also gives you that. But security and ability to feel loved, safe and have belonging is our primary need. And when all those lies go around our head, they speak into the fear that we're not okay, that we're not safe. We're not all right, and so I do it and you do it. We scrounge around trying desperately to have something to stand on, whether it be the clothes we wear, the holiday we have, our job, our personality, whatever, and we desperately, and we will fight for that to no end. But there's a word in here, in this um, passage, I'm not sure if you look at it now, what particularly stands out to you aside from yoke, Uh, but it's this word humble in the middle. I am gentle and humble in heart. The word humility or to be humble is something that we've heard of. Hands up if you've heard of that word. Yep, to be English is to know what the word humble is. Uh, has not always been the case. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But as I explore this concept of humility, we see according to the Webster's Dictionary, it's always helpful to have a definition, having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's importance. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word humble. Um, my fear about that word is that it has a really weak connotation, that it's to be meek, to have no strength or guts. But as we explore the concept of humility, humility is to actually have a strong sense of self or something to offer the world, but you are not running with that full throttle. You're actually resisting it and holding it back for the sake of something bigger and better. So to be truly humble is not to have low self-esteem. To be truly humble is to actually have restraint from the full force of what could come, what you could offer. The word humility, the first definition, I didn't include it, annoyed me. I'm not very humble. And it said humility means the state of being humble. (laughs) 
<laughs> Did anyone else learn in grade five that you never define a word by using the definition? Primary school teachers, help me. This was in the dictionary, what's going on? But let's just have a look at this one. Freedom from pride or arrogance. Not to not be proud, not to not be arrogant, but to be free from it. I'm not sure what your definition of pride or arrogance is. I know none of us like to be on the receiving end of a proud or arrogant person. But pride is an inappropriate, not an inappropriate, an inappropriate inner self-regard. Get this, contrasted with humiliation. Other definitions talk about how it is a, um, a faulty, false view of self, a corrupt view of a person's identity. But when you look at this definition, an inappropriate inner self-regard contrasted with humiliation, there's a couple of things I want to point out. Number one, it has nothing to do with your personality. You could be extroverted or introverted and proud. You could speak a lot or not speak at all and be proud because it's not about outward, it's about the heart. Number two, you can think you're not, you don't have a problem with pride, but as Proverbs says, a person can think that they are pure in their, own, in their own mind and heart, but it's the Lord who weighs the heart and knows its thoughts. So this is not about temperament. This is not about extroversion or introversion. This is an inner reality. It's a state of the heart. And pride is the opposite of humility. But it's the opposite of something more common to us. It's contrasted with humiliation, which is shame. Shame is defined as something that makes us think that we are unworthy of connection, that we have done something bad. Not that we've done something bad, we are bad. And because of that, we are worthless. And so I don't know where you feel you are on that spectrum, from pride to shame. Uh, if you think you're in the middle, according to C.S. Lewis, you're not because he says that if you think you're humble, you're not, because to be humble is to not think of yourself at all. But if you're anything like me, I actually vacillate between pride and shame. This love-hate relationship with oneself, where does that come from? An insecure sense of attachment, sense of safety, rest of soul. So as I've been thinking about this, I actually got the inspiration for this at Kingdom Come Night. Um, we have this fella. I've been doing a bit of thinking about this one. Uh, full disclosure, I, I have to admit, I don't understand Lord of the Rings. Is anyone with me? The plot, it's pretty complicated. There's all sorts of things going on. There's like layers that you're not gonna understand. There's like Aragon, there's like all these evil people. And there's, anyway. But what I do like is this character. And for the sake of uh, our podcasters, we're looking here at Smeagol, not Gollum, who's an endearing, quaint little guy that the more you do a character study on him, the more you kind of start to relate to him. And what you see in Smeagol is that he's driven by this desire to possess this ring, but he's driven by this desire to possess something that is actually enslaving him. And so it's kind of like this circular thing where you're driven for this, but this is what's keeping you captive. Don't know if you relate to that. That this drive for this ring 
And this pursuit actually twisted his mind and he just went a little bit nutty. He had moments of clarity, but it had power over him that was more powerful than the power within himself. And you see this dialogue where he's desperate to be free from it, but he just can't because that power of his precious ring is just so strong that he's ruled by it. He's in torment over it. He has a love-hate relationship with himself. He loves himself and he hates himself and he's driven nutty by that except for the times when he goes fishing. He's kind of like free when he tries to find some fish. It reminds me of pride and shame. To be proud and have an overestimate of oneself and yet at the same time feel like you're worthless. Um, We talk about this all the time, but for you guys, I'm pretty sure you know it because it's your reality, but never has a generation had so much potential spoken into it and yet felt so worthless that those inward aspects of who you are and what shapes your identity, they've been built from the outside and not from the inside. And so this I am special message that you've received from parenting right through to education means, yeah, I, I am special, but I don't know what that means. Why am I special? And that fear that marks you, that marks us, that we're a fraud, that we can't do it, that we're not good enough, that keeps you up at night. That will give you anxiety. That will create a turmoil in you. Humility in this light is not about meekness or low self-esteem. Humility is neither an inflated sense of self nor a sense of unworthiness. It is to have a secure attachment with nothing to prove. And so the one human being who has a secure attachment with nothing to prove despite the fact he is the fullness of God, comes to you and he says, come to me. I know where you're tired. I know where it's got too much. I know where it's exhausting. I want to give you soul rest, not Netflix rest. I want to go deeper into humility and John Dixon actually starts to define humility, not like the Webster's Dictionary. He starts to bring God into the picture. Um, And in his definition of humility, he says, to have humility is to hold power loosely. In other words, you've got power. You have got something secure, evident, obvious, human agency. But you're holding it loosely for what? For the good of who? You can all read. For the good of others. And then to recite another way, not for personal gain. Uh, John Dixon is an Anglican um, vicar. He heads up a centre for public Christianity in Sydney. He's actually predominantly a historian. And Macquarie University 10 years ago commissioned him, not because he's a Christian, but because he's an historian, to actually research humility. And so he did. He researched it as unbiased as he could be and he came up with an unequivocal finding. But because of his Christian bias, he had to kind of let go of that and let the the non-Christians historians actually take it and run with it. And what he found out, something like humility and what it means to be humble, a virtue that is noble today. Oh, such a humble person. Oh, such a... And there's a beauty to humility has not always been considered a virtue. In fact, prior to the first century, humility was bad. Humility was synonymous with humiliation. Humility was synonymous with the same status of being at the lowest of the lows. 
And we can think, you know, oh, yeah, the lowest of the lows today. But in the Roman era at that time, that was a literal thing. There was a literal hierarchy where there were the highest of the high all the way down to the lowest of the lows. And it was the lowest of the low that was called humble. It was never a respected concept. And so as they looked into this research uh, deeper, they found out things like, which they've known for a while, that um, the, there was class system and people were divided into their class. Only 2% of the Roman Empire were considered noble, good, highly esteemed, 98% everybody else. But it wasn't as clear cut as that. Within that 2%, there's a hierarchy. And that hierarchy was shown based on the colour of clothing that you wore, where you sat at the table, what language you used, and what law applied to you. The legal system was based on your class. It wasn't equal. It wasn't consistent. It wasn't based on anything other than your class. Male, female, where are you in the hierarchy? It might be hard for us to think about being in a status-driven society. I'm not sure. But this was a day and era where this was exactly how it functioned. I'm going to give you Caesar Augustus. I'm going to give you his LinkedIn page. Three times I triumphed at oration. 21 times I was named emperor. The Senate voted yet more triumphs for me, which I declined because the victory is won by me. The Senate voted thanks for me to the immortal gods. 55 times in my triumphs, nine kings or children of kings were led before my chariot. I've been consul 13 times. I was highest ranking senator for 40 years. I held the office of Pontific Pontificate Maximus and all citizens with one accord unceasingly prayed on every holy place for my well-being. A golden shield was given me by the Senate and people of Rome on account of my courage, clemency, justice and piety. And after this time, I excelled all in importance. Not unlike a number of LinkedIn pages I've seen, but the difference <laughs> is, the difference is today it's frowned upon to gloat. Pre-Christ, it was esteemed to gloat. In fact, you were meant to gloat. You were born to gloat. And so John Dixon handing his research over because he felt he was going to be implicated because he was a, he's a Christian reverend in the Anglican church, hands it over. And Ed, Edwin Judge, Professor Edwin Judge, who is considered uh, one of the world's leading professors in understanding Western civilization, says this. The modern fondness for humility entirely derives from the peculiar impact, I love that, peculiar impact on Europe of the Judeo-Christian worldview. This is not a religious conclusion. This is purely a historical finding. That this Jesus literally changed the world, not just with his death and with his resurrection, but in bringing a completely different way of living as norm to society to a culture that would say, let me be great, let me be great, let me be great, to hearts of man that say, let me be great, let me be great, let me be great. He says, whoever wants to be great among you needs to be a servant. We're familiar with that. They were not familiar with that. They had never, ever heard such a concept, had not even entered the human psyche, that you would lower yourself, to become a slave. 
Andrew Murray, who is a 18th, 19th century missionary, South African, wrote a book on humility that I happened to read over my sabbatical uh, footnote. God sometimes gets you to write a message you need to learn. So <laughs> I'm reading this book. Someone after the AM service this morning says, oh, your sabbatical sounds awful. I know <laughs> 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 it was awesome. Why? Because he's so kind. His grace is so immense. He knows you so well. I didn't even know I was being rebuked. I wouldn't even use that word. But he was lifting the lid on some stuff I didn't even know was there. Why? Because I weigh my own heart. He goes, no, 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 I know your heart. So Andrew Murray, South African missionary, says this. Humility is the state of mind and heart that allows God to be God. Think about that for a second. Ah, he's God. You're the creature. You're the created, not the creator. You don't have to run your life as if you're the creator. You get to live your life in dependence, arm in arm, hand in hand with the creator who actually created you, who knows you, who knows every day ordained for you, every hair that is on your head. And so to be humble is a state of mind and a state of heart that actually you be God because I don't think I can do this. (laughs) I can't do that. He goes on to say, it is simply acknowledging the truth of one's position as creature and yielding to God his place. The free news that he's the creator, you're the created. And could it be that the creator knows the best way for you to live out your day? Prior to being hit over the head with a gentle hammer about this, I realised subconsciously that I knew Jesus was humble. It's one of the most dominant characteristics that he is known for. But I think subconsciously I thought it was like a tool in his toolkit to achieve a bigger goal. He was humble in heaven. And he came to earth humble because that's who he is. And he came to earth humble because he knows how to be a human. And he's showing us how to live, how we don't know how to. How's that for grammar? Are we all right? And so as you look at the Gospels, you begin to see a human being who has the most secure attachment you can possibly have and can rest in that security and that attachment with nothing to prove. And this is what we see just in John. The son can do nothing of himself. By myself, Jesus, I can do nothing. I do not accept glory from human beings. I have come not to do my own will. My teaching is not my own. I have not come of myself. I can do nothing of myself. I do not seek my own glory. And the words that I say, I, the words that I say, I speak not from myself. The words which you hear are not mine. This is someone who holds power loosely, 
for the benefit of others and not for self. Now I've gone, yeah, but it was Jesus. <laughs> yeah, he had the benefit of knowing the Father intimately and consciously, but I do believe we, our souls have always known the Father. It's just we're catching up to the fact. But he knew it tangibly. He's Jesus. How could we even dare to be like him? Maybe Paul could. But you know, they both say, imitate me. Jesus says, if you love me, become like me. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In other words, it is possible, not through your own human will, through your own human effort, and putting this on your task list and your discipline list, I'm just going to will myself to be like this. For you to actually live the life of freedom in a kingdom where God is the creator, you are the created, and you are step by step with him in a yoke that he carries and you get to walk in freedom with. Not an easy life, an easier way. I sometimes think we write Jesus off too much because we feel like it's unattainable. He's doing it because he knows we can do it and he's showing us the better way. And so what I'm trying to say here, I don't know how clear or how strong I've said it, so I'm going to say it now. Humility is actually our God-given nature. It's not something that we then have to try and adopt. Humility and the state of humility is our unfallen state. Why? Because we knew we were the creature. The creature. We knew we were the creature and we knew God was God. And so in the kingdom and in the heavens, the heavenly host, their nature is one of humility. Jesus, in heaven, before he comes to earth, his nature is humility. Adam and Eve, as they walked with with God in the garden, was one of humility. Not self-abasement, not low self-esteem, not meekness, I'll just dissolve so God can be big. Not that. I'm going to be like this so God can be God and then he can tell us how to. And when we walked out of that, it didn't go so well. And so humility, this is not something that you've got to try to find. This is something that is within your essence and your being. But it comes out naturally the stronger your attachment and your security to God is. It is not something that is willed. It is our natural state, but it doesn't come naturally. I have five nephews. Five. Latest one born yesterday. Thank you. It's another boy, which is great because we need them, don't we, girls? Do we or do we not need some more men in the world? So I'm excited by this. Joshua River Deutscher. And uh, I'm digressing. I've got five nephews. Christmas last year, the oldest three live in Cairns. They were down on a holiday. And I just marvelled at what I got to witness in the family cricket match. Dad's batting... My brother's bowling. Noah, the eight-year-old, sister, the six-year-old, as the ball comes to him. Catch it, Joshy, catch it. Ball's coming. Joshy doesn't like to be told what to do, so puts his hands on his hips and says, I know, Noah, as the ball drops. (laughs) Meanwhile, four-year-old Zach is crying in the bushes because he wasn't batting. And so I'm just watching the mystery of human nature just appearing before us. I'm like, wow, here we are. So I take Zach up to get some um, cookies and milk. (laughs) He's crying, crying, crying. And here I am, humbly serving him 
coffee. I mean, coffee. <laughs> Maybe that's where I went wrong. Milk and cookies. He's so annoyed. He's like, I hate you. <laughs> I hate you. And I hate your car. I had a new car. I hate your car and I hate your presence. I just hate this. Like, just angry. And I know the Bible says fathers don't exasperate your children, but there's nothing in there about aunties. <laughs> so I said, oh, good. I'll have the presents back then. Excellent. I'll, I would like to have them for myself. And off it went. Off it went. Then later in the afternoon, I'm in the sun. I was thinking I was doing my nails. I was doing something. And out comes this little four-year-old. Blonde Kelly hair, big brown eyes. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I mean, as I'm taking this off, I'm hearing it, and you're probably just thinking I'm weird, but humour me. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it. I really do love your presence. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. I said, that's okay, Zachy. He goes, no, I'm, I'm really sorry. It's, it's not my fault. It's not my fault. These voices, pride and shame, pride and shame, that wreak havoc in our hearts and our souls. And I could see it in a four-year-old who was living with the own juxtaposition of his own emotions. And yet this is bad, it's not my fault. There's something bigger shaping this. And I don't know how to get out of it. what tends to be more natural is this concept called pride. And I feel like pride is easier to define by its characteristics as opposed to the Webster's definition. Um, these are not the ones I came up with. These are the ones that um, articles talk about are the primary, primary characteristics of pride. A critical spirit, ungratefulness, bitterness, anger, perfectionism, entitlement, Offensiveness, by that I mean offended easily. Unteachability, control, defensiveness, resistance to authority, and desperation of attention. And we could look at that and go, and oh, seriously, I'm always, by the way, in case you're wondering, I'm not perfect. It's like, I know you think I am, but I'm not. <laughs> but we can look at that and go, yeah, we're all proud. You guys suck. I suck. I'm worthless. It's, it's not even remotely the point. Every single one of these characteristics comes from a sense of abandonment or disconnection from the very one who wants to tell you who you are. And if you're so blessed with a naturally humble temperament, like my oldest nephew, genuinely is naturally humble, it's really annoying. <laughs> You've been on the receiving end. And it's actually this stuff that Jesus is speaking to in Matthew 11. And he's going, I know you can't do it. I know it's way too hard. I don't know if you've ever willed yourself to be, to change. Has anyone ever willed themselves to change? How's it gone for you? It's so frustrating. And he's saying, so come to me. I've got a different way. I've got an easier way. And as we look at this and why it's so dominant and why it's so strong, as Andrew Murray says this, and I think it's key, 
that pride has its root and strength in a terrible power outside of us as well as within us. So it's a double whammy. And so you might be doing okay, but the outside powers, rulers, principalities, not so much. Or vice versa. And so there is an external force that takes this to be our normal natural state, and there is an internal force. Don't have time to go there, but in Ezekiel 28, as I turn there without you having to, we have this story, I don't know if you've read this before, but it's this story of this lament actually about Lucifer, who was the angel of light, a seal of perfection in the garden, became Satan, the fallen one. And Ezekiel 28 says this, and Isaiah 14 has its own version. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you. On the list goes. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for I so ordained you. You are on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways. From the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Your heart became proud, and on account of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor, and so I threw you to the earth and made a spectacle of you before the kings. This is an account of what happened to Lucifer, this prized angel, who graced God's presence, and something got under his skin that said, I want to be God. I want that. And then that's the outside force being thrown to earth and the rulers and the powers and the principalities of his domain have that same heartbeat and are marked by that same poison. And they hate you understanding who God is and they have an assault against the glory of God that is in your life. And so as a famous quote goes, the story of your life when you think of the, the themes of suffering or struggle that have been over you, is the story of the one who knows who you could be, being Satan himself, and fears it. And so he deliberately goes after the freedom that God has for you, and he deliberately goes after the very glory of God that is in your life. Because if you do encounter the freedom and the glory, you are too much of a threat for his principality of darkness that he's got over the and so what he does is he fills us with lies about ourselves. Both Jeremiah and Romans talk about that. They've exchanged God's glory for lies. And then he gets you to have a heightened view of yourself in all the wrong ways. He's very twisted. He's very clever. And that's the outside force who then comes to Eve herself, the mother of life. And with that voice comes to her, whispers in her ear something pretty powerful. The very thing that tempted him, you too could be like God. It's an offer too good to be true. As the poison enters her being and she eats the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that poison then enters her bloodstream, enters her soul, and all of us have been born naturally into that space. And every war, every fight, every misunderstanding, every act of betrayal, Every act of abuse has always stemmed from someone's or your own pride. And this isn't just a nice little Christian message that goes, oh, silly Satan, look what he's done. It's live today. And this is so real that this means every time I act out of that, 
I am actually advancing the curse that is on the earth. Every time you act at a, out of an overinflated sense of self or in a position where you're God and you're in control, we are actually just advancing the curse. And so when Jesus says, come to me, or you who are weary, and I will give you rest, come learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. The very one that turned Western civilization on its head is saying, when you learn from me and you practice my unforced rhythms of grace, you are reversing the curse. You are not dissolving and disappearing. You're actually just stepping aside so I can come in and I can be God in that situation where you're not sure what to do or in that fear that is driving you that you don't know how to be free from, or in that worry that is keeping you awake at two o'clock in the morning, come to me. He's so passionate about reversing this curse. And the way he's doing it is he's starting with individual people like you and me, who are then called the church. I'm not talking about a service or a lower C church. I'm talking about his heartbeat for the church of people who have tasted his grace and tasted that humility and the kindness of who he is. And so we cannot help but reorientate our heart and our understanding of how to live. And as we do that together, that just multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. And we become a people of blessing on the earth to a world that desperately needs it because it is dark and it's getting darker. And so, humility is the answer and the key to return to our rightful place. If you're looking for a practical in today's message, I'm going to give it to you now. It's only one and it's one word. It's the word yes. I invite you to say yes to God. And by that I mean that voice that is in your spirit and your heart about what he's speaking to you and what he's got for you, that your flesh may lack the courage to believe. I invite you, I challenge you, I'm going to do it to myself, to choose to trust that and go and stand there and go and act from that place. And the second yes is that we begin to serve God by actually serving others. And so I want you to say yes to others. The corruption of the pride that is in our veins, in our unfallen nature, means by default, whether you're a four-year-old kid with curly blonde hair or a 40-year-old woman with once curly hair, is that we naturally think that we're right and the other person's wrong. We naturally judge others. And what does Jesus say? Do not judge. So I'm going to get you to say yes to people. Don't let the critique enter in first. Don't let your own judgment cloud your view. Say yes to others. It's obviously wisdom with this. We're not going to go all yes man and be all Jim Carrey. Say yes to everything. Yes to God and yes to others. Yes to the other person's interests before your own. Yes to that still small voice that is inviting you to freedom in ways that are exciting and scary all at the same time. And the reason we can do this is that Jesus came as a humble king. Humility itself brought humility to earth. His humility is our salvation. Without it, we wouldn't be saved. And his salvation becomes our humility. 
this humble, submitted king. And this is where it's not our sin, it's not the things that make us shame, it's not the things that make us go, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I am not, I am not, I am not, that are going to bring us there. It hasn't worked for me and I haven't seen it work for anyone. Do you know what brings you to humility? An awakening to his grace and his kindness. Romans talks about how his kindness leads us to repentance. And so humility is the final consummation of grace. Andrew Murray goes as far as to say that the whole chief end to your discipleship, apart from the kingship of Jesus, the whole chief end is for your humility. Everything he's doing in you at the moment, everything he's doing within us as a body of people is that we would be a humble people who hold power loosely for the benefit of others. So as we draw to a close, I might just get you to dim the lights if we can. I just want to show you a a little segment as we think about the voices in our brain and the tension that is within. invite the worship team up. I'm going to invite you to stand and I would just like to read a poem over you as we enter into ministry time. 
Uh, the way ministry time works is that we don't facilitate that. The heartbeat is that the Holy Spirit does. And so as we've been sitting and worshipping this evening and enjoying cookies and conversation and communion, the Spirit's been working and been moving. And now's the time to respond to anything that he's tapped on your shoulder about or spoken into your heart about, to just reset our, our minds to that space. I, I want to read a poem over you that was shared this morning from someone within the AM service. I'm going to invite you to hold your hands out. Oh, Jesus, meek and humble of heart, hear me. From the desire of being esteemed, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being loved, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being extolled, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being honoured, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being praised, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being preferred to others, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being consulted, deliver me, Jesus. From the desire of being approved, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being humiliated, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being despised, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of suffering rebuke, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being falsely accused, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being forgotten, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being ridiculed, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being wronged, deliver me, Jesus. From the fear of being suspected, deliver me, Jesus. Jesus, would you deliver us this evening? Knowing the hearts and minds and the fears and the concerns, knowing the lies that have marked the stories of people so far, I ask and pray now that you would bring your freedom, that you would speak, that you would usher in those unforced rhythms of grace, that you would wash our souls, that you would heal our hearts, that you would restore us, I pray, in the power and the wonder of the living God. 